Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we call upon your name this morning. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand from your word. We pray that you would move and stir up our affections for you. Would you speak to us by your word through your spirit this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who is Jesus? Have you ever been asked that question before? If so, how did you answer? Or if someone were to ask that question to you now, what would you say? It's not a new question. It's certainly a question that could surrender a number of answers. But I would like to submit to you this morning that the way that you answer that question is of crucial importance. Not only that, but that Jesus himself is actually concerned about how you answer that question. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark 8, verse 22. That's where you'll find our sermon passage this morning. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 22. You can find that on page 844 of the Bibles provided. And uh, if you are visiting and you don't have a copy of God's Word at home for you to read... Uh, We would love for you to just take one of the the black Bibles in the chairs as our gift to you. Uh, You don't have to give us anything for it. Uh, We would just love for everyone here to have their own personal copy of God's Word to read. We believe that God has spoken to us by His Word. He has inspired it with His Spirit. And that everything that it intends to communicate is without error. I've mentioned quite a few times in our journey through the Gospel of Mark that chapter 8 marks the halfway point in the book. And the reason for that is because the first eight chapters have a question looming over them through each passage, and that question is the very same one that I pose to you, and that is, who is Jesus? It's one of the primary focuses of the book as a whole. If you remember all the way back to chapter 1, the very first verse of the book, Mark tells his readers... It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He tells us right there who Jesus is and what his ministry was like. Uh, And it's because he's communicating to his audience what their Lord was like. It's like he had the question in mind, how do we know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? So he wrote this account of Jesus' life and ministry. Remember last week we noted that there are different characters that we see throughout the Gospel of Mark. Namely, we see crowds and and, and we see anonymous crowds, we see the disciples, and then we see Pharisees. And they all respond to Jesus differently. And we came up with a a quick abbreviation for each of them. The anonymous crowds we called MISC for miscellaneous. The disciples we shortened to DISC. And the Pharisees we called the TISC because they shake their heads at Jesus. So these are the three main characters throughout the book, but each of them grapples with the identity of Jesus in different ways. So, for example, remember all the way back in chapter 1 when Jesus began his ministry, he was teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum, and he cast out a demon, and the response of the people around was, what's this? A new teaching with authority. He commands and even the unclean spirits obey him. 
It's in chapter 1, verse 27. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, he tells the paralytic that his sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees standing by are asking themselves, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then in chapter 4, the disciples, they find themselves in a terrible storm, fearing for their lives. Jesus, who's sleeping, gets up, speaks to the storm, and stills it. And they then are even more afraid than when they were fearing for their lives, when they see that power demonstrated over nature itself. And they ask themselves, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then in chapter 6, Jesus goes to the very town he grew up in, small town. And people who knew his family say, what is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? In that same chapter, word of Jesus' ministry even reaches political realms as Herod the Tetrarch decides for himself. He comes up with his own opinion about who he thinks Jesus is. Chapter 7, Jesus heals the deaf man and the people responding say, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Which is an echo of the prophet Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. And then in chapter 8, the Pharisees test Jesus about who he is. He, they, they require a sign because they're trying to trick him. They're denying what the miracles and teachings have said positively about him so far. All this time, the disciples have not yet correctly perceived who Jesus is. In fact, he even rebuked them last week, calling them blind and deaf. Well, in our text this morning, we see a monumental shift in momentum as the disciples perceive, at least in part, the truth about who Jesus is. Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, confesses who they believe he is. And from this point on, the book shifts from who Jesus is to why he came, what he came to do. Let's read our text together now. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 30. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Last week I made the observation that Jesus calling his disciples blind and deaf is sandwiched in between two miracles. So just before the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus opens the ears of a deaf man. And now, after, 
He's giving a man who is blind sight. Both of those two miracles, by the way, are unique to the Gospel of Mark. They're not recorded in any other Gospel. And it's because Mark is using them to show us the connection between seeing, hearing, and understanding Jesus rightly. In other words, to know Jesus, to, or to not know Jesus, rather, is to be spiritually blind. The main idea of this miracle, followed by Peter's confession, is that spiritual discernment is given to us by God and sometimes comes in stages. Spiritual discernment is given to us by God and sometimes comes in stages. I think it's best to just examine the miracle first and then Peter's confession. So I'm just going to have one point for each paragraph. Verses 22 through 26, Jesus heals the man's blindness. And verses 27 through 30, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. My prayer for us is that we would be able to recognize God's miraculous power in revealing himself to us and that we would have a greater appreciation for his sovereign plan over our lives. So let's jump in. Point one, Jesus heals the man's blindness. This is a fascinating miracle. And one reason it is a fascinating miracle is because there's a number of similarities to Jesus healing the deaf man, as I just mentioned. In both cases, unknown people bring the subject to Jesus. Both defects, deafness and blindness, would basically mean that this person spent their life on the streets as a beggar. Jesus takes each person to a remote place to heal them in both miracles. He uses saliva each time, which may seem odd. And if you weren't here for the explanation of that last week, the basic summary is that saliva was used by healers of the day. So there's nothing special about Jesus' saliva in particular. It has no healing powers. It's normal saliva like your saliva or mine. But it's merely a way for Jesus to communicate to the person that he's going to heal them in the process. And then just like we've seen, Jesus, after the miracle, tells them not to tell others what happened. Despite all these similarities, there's a few differences as well. You might be surprised to hear that this is actually the first time in the book that we read about Jesus healing a blind person. Uh, I think we just get the, the sense from Mark's summary statements as Jesus is going through towns, he's just healing people left and right, And maybe there was a blind person in there somewhere. But this is the first time that Mark has actually elaborated on it. Another unique thing about this story is that Jesus doesn't heal him right away. Every other miracle up to this point, Jesus has healed them instantaneously. This is the first time Jesus has healed someone in stages, which is very strange. It's another method to the already diverse ways that Jesus has dealt with people. In this case, he leads the man out of the village. He spits on his eyes, touches, asks him if he can see, touches him again. Why didn't Jesus just heal everyone the same way every time? Have you ever thought about that? We've noted in the past that one takeaway for us is just that God works in a diversity of ways to reveal himself to people. Jesus' various methods of healing makes for fascinating reading. I think it would be a bit redundant if all he did every time was just touch people and they were healed. But throughout the gospel, Jesus has spoken 
and people have been healed. He has touched and they've been cleansed. People have touched him and been cleansed and he's taught around each account. It just shows us that God uses a variety of means. But when he does, it's usually deliberate, appropriate, and unexpected. It's amazing the way that God draws people to himself. For some, they understand the truths of the gospel at a very young age, growing up in the church. Others live a life full of sin, and then they hit rock bottom, and then they feel the weight of their sin, and they're, con- they're convicted for their need of a Savior. But both of those testimonies are eventually submitting to the same truth. Both feel the weight of their sin before a holy God, and both trust in Jesus as the divine Son of God, and they trust in His death and resurrection to save them. Well, here's another unique story for you, just another encouraging example of the way that God has converted someone in an unlikely way. There was once a pastor named William Haslam. He was preaching in the 1800s. And he was preaching a text in Matthew in which the Pharisees were asked, what do you think about the Christ? And he recorded this about the event. As I went on to explain the passage, I saw that the Pharisees and scribes did not know that Christ was the Son of God or that he was come to save them. They were looking for a king, the son of David, to reign over them as they were. Something was telling me all the time, you are no better than the Pharisees yourself. You do not believe that he is the Son of God and that he came to save you any more than they did. I do not remember all I said, but I felt a wonderful light and joy coming into my soul, and I was beginning to see what the Pharisees did not. Whether it was something in my words or my manner or my look, I know not, but all of a sudden a local preacher who happened to be in the congregation stood up and putting up his arms shouted in a Cornish manner, the person is converted, the person is converted, hallelujah. And in another moment his voice was lost in the shouts and praises of three or four hundred of the congregation. Instead of rebuking this extraordinary brawling, as I should have done in a former time, I joined in the outburst of praise. And to make it more orderly, I gave out the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And the people sang it with heart and voice over and over again. One thing I said was that if I died last week, I should have been lost forever. I felt it was true. So clear and vivid was the conviction through which I passed. And so distinct was the light unto which the Lord had brought me. That I knew and was sure that he had brought me up out of the horrible pit out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and put a new song into my mouth. He had quickened me who was before dead in trespasses and sins. The man was converted during his own sermon. Brothers and sisters, the diversity of healings that we see Jesus perform throughout the gospel demonstrate that God draws people to himself in all kinds of different ways, even for those who don't know that they're lost. Back to our story. The fact that Jesus heals in stages has caused some to wonder if this was some kind of miscalculation by Jesus, like he just didn't put quite enough healing power into his hand when he touched him, didn't get the job done all the way. But I don't think that's what happened. Once again, all the previous miracles show us Jesus' great power. He touches the first man, the man the first time, and he asks if he can see anything. 
And that's also unique. It's the only time that Jesus has asked someone he's healing how they are. He's diagnosing the man like a doctor. But the man is able to tell Jesus, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So just imagine for a moment you're looking through a pair of binoculars and you have the adjuster in the middle to change the focus. And it's moved basically all the way to the side so that you can see vague shapes but you can't really make out what they are and they're so blurry they might as well be trees. That's basically what the man sees here. And then Jesus touches him again. And after the second touch, his sight is restored. How can we apply this to our lives? First, it's just worth noting that God often works in stages, not just in salvation, but in life in general. In some sense, our spiritual vision is always a little bit blurry. If we do see anything that God is doing, it's usually partial at best. So we need to face the reality that God does things according to His plan, which is not always the way we envision things happening. And we need to recognize that we don't have perfect spiritual vision. And to, God, and to us, God's outworking plan in our lives may seem fuzzy and unclear, but He's promised to turn our faith into sight when we meet Him face to face. And it may only be then when we see everything clearly. It's good to admit that we are finite beings. We're not supposed to know everything that God knows, nor could we bear it if we did. Our feeble minds and hearts could not possibly handle everything that happens at all times in all places. But we are made to trust the one who upholds all things in all places and has worked out all things for the good of those who love him according to his purposes, Romans 8.28. Did you notice that Jesus didn't just take him to a secluded area, but he personally took him all the way outside of the village? I don't know how far that was, but it was probably farther than across the street. For whatever reason, this little detail stuck out to me when I was studying the text. Of course, he's blind, so someone has to lead him. But if I had 12 lackeys around me at all times, I would probably have them escort the man. But Jesus here takes his hand personally and leads him along, which I think is just another example of Jesus' tender compassion and care for those who need him. Unlike the deaf man, he would be able to communicate. So part of me wonders if as they walked along the way, they had a conversation and Jesus asked him about his life. Or maybe Jesus explained to him who he was and what he was going to do for him. Jesus may have led him out of the village to care for him as an individual, not make a spectacle, as he did the deaf man. He may have also done it to conceal the miracle, since he informs the man not to return to the village, but go straight home. And that's just because we've seen that a number of times as well, but that's just because of the differing opinions about who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't want people to get the wrong idea about him or attract unnecessary attention at this point. But I think there's another reason Jesus takes this man all the way outside the village. The things I already mentioned are probably part of it. But I think the primary reason Jesus escorted this man outside the village was actually for the sake of his disciples. Just like the other miracles, this one is a sign to support teaching of some kind, to communicate a spiritual reality. That's part of the reason 
this specific miracle is unique. Jesus cared for the man himself, but he's using this healing of the man specifically to teach his disciples something. What was a miracle for the blind man was a parable for the disciples. He wanted to show them that the ability to see things both physically and spiritually can only happen by the power of Jesus. Jesus is the one who opens the eyes of the blind and unstops the ears of the deaf. And if they remember their conversation with Jesus in the boat, back in verse 18, they would recognize that they are in need of healing as well. And that's what brings me to the second point. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Jesus and his disciples continue on their journey. They go north from Bethsaida, which is at the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. They continue up north to the villages of Caesarea. And one commentator just noted that from this point in the book, Jesus basically journeys south down to Jerusalem to the cross. It's about 100 miles north. But Jesus just healed the man in two stages. And now as they're journeying along the way, Jesus asks his disciples two questions. First, he asks what people are saying about who he is. And they answer with some of the same rumors that we heard back in chapter 6 when news reached Herod. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now, I'm in the habit, when I read things like that, of basically assuming that these views about Jesus are because people are unimpressed. Uh, You know, it it sounds like maybe they think he's respectable, but they're kind of cop-out answers. They're just explaining him away. Like they don't want to give him too much credit. But actually, these opinions about Jesus are very high. Elijah is one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, Specifically, he's famous because he never died. A flaming chariot came down and took him up to heaven. And then another prophet said that he would return. And so... Not only was he a great prophet while he lived, but there was reason to believe he would come back. John was widely respected and feared. Remember, Herod feared him so much. Even the general description that Jesus was one of the prophets is actually flattering. Because they don't think Jesus was merely a prophet, but one of the prophets meaning one of the greats in history that God has used to speak powerfully, to relay his message to his people. So to liken Jesus to any one of these three is not to downplay Jesus' ministry at all or his influence. If anything, it speaks volumes that people would consider him among some of the most spectacular figures in history. And yet, even still, as high as these opinions are, they still fall utterly short of who he really is. And you can tell by the way Jesus looks past those answers and asks the disciples directly, who do you say that I am? There's a lot of opinions about Jesus. Uh, That has always been the case. It's true today as well. People believe all kinds of different things about him, not because he's buried in history, not because we live in a a post-Christian culture. There's always been differing opinions, even during the time that Jesus walked on the earth. But according to Jesus, there is a right and a wrong answer. Don't make the mistake of thinking 
that because there are so many opinions, that there can't be a right one. No one can never truly know who he was. That's what some people think. But even these people who witnessed Jesus, even if they didn't have the correct confession, were awestruck by him. Speaking of views about Jesus today, many people have a a positive view about him. Not everyone is hostile or indifferent. Muslims regard him as a prophet. Buddhists think that he was enlightened. But a positive or a high view of Jesus, just like in this text, is not enough. It's interesting that Jesus has not actually asked this outright yet of his disciples. You would think that when he first called them, told them to lay their fishing nets aside and follow him, you think he would say, you know, let's just get one thing straight first, okay? I'm the boss. You're going to do what I tell you to do, okay? I'm the son of God. Just making sure. And then what about the disciples? You would think, hey, this guy's calling us to leave our families, our jobs, everything we have. Who are you before we just go with you? Neither of those things happen. But even more interesting, so far in the Gospel of Mark, the only people that have correctly identified Jesus is God himself at his baptism and demons. The Syrophoenician woman calls him Lord, which, is, which stands out. But otherwise, the question has not really been answered. And the disciples who have been with him all this time have not said anything. It's a sobering reminder for us about what the Lord Jesus said about Judgment Day, when many will come, saying, Lord, Lord, and he will tell them he never knew them. And he asks them to depart, workers of lawlessness. What you believe about Jesus makes all the difference, and the destination of your soul hangs in the balance. The application for the disciples, and anyone reading this story, is that on what other people say about Jesus. You need to decide for yourself. So kids in the room, uh, I'm so glad you're here. You, if you grow up going to church like I did, uh, that is a good and godly thing. God's design is that Christians would raise kids and teach them about him and his character. And yet at the same time, at a certain point in your life, you're going to have to decide what you think about Jesus individually, separately from your parents. Now, Ask your parents, of course, they're there to guide you and give you wisdom, but it is something that you'll have to do on your own eventually. Peter's response, which represents the disciples as a whole, is a breath of fresh air in the book. You are the Christ. And it just never hurts to say. Uh, We're so used to tagging on Christ after Jesus that I just want to be extra clear. Christ is not a last name. Uh, Christ, in fact, is a title It's the Greek word for Messiah or for anointed one. Specifically, it's the eschatological king who would reign and sit on the throne through all eternity. When we think about anointing in the Old Testament, there's only three groups of people that we see anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings. So the reference to the anointed one carried a connotation of being a leader of the people. And because the Jewish People were currently under the control of the Romans. 
The most common belief was that the Messiah would come and lead the people to overthrow them. And we'll see that maybe Peter's understanding is not so different from that. Next week, Jesus will correct him and provide specific teaching about what it means that he is the Christ. But for now, Peter has the right confession with the wrong understanding. And that's where the miracle comes into play. Peter has partial vision. The blind man was healed in stages in order to demonstrate that God sometimes does the same with us, but specifically for the disciples. Remember how last week we pointed out just how silly it was that the wilderness generation, after eating manna from heaven, as soon as they got thirsty, complained and asked if they were going to die in the wilderness. And then the disciples, just before Jesus rebukes them, they're given the same sign. Jesus provides bread and they don't understand it. And he calls them blind and deaf. And then he uses these real-life demonstrations to show that he will open their eyes and unplug their ears. And Peter's confession is like stage one of this man's restored vision. Peter is confessing Jesus is the Christ, but he's like he's saying he sees people, but they look like trees walking because they don't fully understand. And nor will they, even at the point of Jesus' crucifixion, When Jesus appears to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, after he's crucified, after he resurrects, he finds them sulking because they think all is lost. They forgot that he had taught them that three days later he would rise from the grave. And after Jesus teaches them from the scriptures how the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus, they still don't recognize him, but they're intrigued by his teaching, so they ask him to stay for dinner. And then when he breaks bread... They remember the final meal they had with him, and it says their eyes were opened. If this passage is stage one of Peter's vision becoming clear, then what we read earlier in the service is when he can see clearly in Acts 2 when he's given the sermon about Jesus being the Christ whom they crucified. He did not stay dead, but rose from the grave. In Matthew's telling of this event, Peter's confession, Jesus tells Peter that flesh and blood did not reveal this to him, but his Father in heaven. And he also says that on the confession, he would build the foundation of the church against which the gates of hell would not prevail. Peter's confession here is a spiritual illumination to the truth about who Jesus is. It's the secret of the kingdom of God that Jesus said he had given to the disciples in chapter 4, verse 11. And Mark's telling of this story. You can tell it's correct by the way that Jesus instructs them to tell no one, which has been his response to many of the miracles up to this point. How can we apply this confession to our lives today? First, if you believe Jesus is the Christ, as I believe most of you do, it's one of the requirements to join as a member. Your confession is the right one. Your confession is the one that Jesus wants to hear from his disciples. Hold fast to it and don't let anything take it away from you. Praise the Lord that he has given you sight to see clearly who Jesus is from the scriptures even so many years after he walked on the earth. Second, it's important to see that Jesus believed his disciples had enough information to make a judgment about who he was. No one can come to this Understanding, apart from the power of God and a certain amount of knowledge 
about him. And he uses his teaching and miraculous events to show these things to his people. If you've read through the Gospel of Mark this far and you've not put your trust in Jesus, then I would just want to encourage you, what's stopping you? If you have the same amount of information, you've witnessed the same miracles at this point as the disciples. You now have what it takes to recognize Jesus is the Christ. Turn from your sins and trust in him today. Maybe you're interested, but you're not quite convinced yet. And the blurry vision of people looking like trees is maybe how you would describe your own understanding of the Bible. Like you like what you're reading, but you're just not quite sure it's fitting yet. Let me just encourage you to keep seeking and keep asking questions. Pray that the Lord would reveal himself to you and speak to you clearly through his word. This is the first great confession in the Gospel of Mark, but it isn't the only one. In fact, Jesus himself explains who he is. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark 14, just a few chapters over. Mark 14, verse 61. Just before his death, Jesus is interrogated by the chief priests who ask him directly what he claims to be. Mark fourteen sixty one. He remained silent and made no answer. Sounds like Isaiah 53. Like a lamb sent to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Again, the high priest asked him, you are, the, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. At the beginning of the sermon, I asked who Jesus is. Does your definition match his? The disciples' eyes were only beginning to see who he was, who he is. We remember this morning the confession of Peter and the meaning behind it that was not fully revealed to him yet. That Jesus is the Christ and that he came as a ransom for sinners. All of his power and all of his wisdom, it was still the will of God to crush him so that we might be saved. That Jesus is the Christ means that he is the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3. It means that he is David's son and yet David's Lord from Psalm 110 verse 1. He's the child promised in Isaiah 9, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. And he's a suffering servant. And by his wounds we have been healed. We celebrate Christ's Messiahship this morning by taking the Lord's Supper. Because Jesus is not just a prophet or just a priest or just a king. He's simultaneously appointed by God to be all three for all eternity. He's the Word made flesh. Announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God with his very presence. His mission was to provide a sacrifice to God for the sins of all who believed in him, which he did with his own body on the cross. And he rose from the grave three days later, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he rules over all things for eternity, even today. Jesus is the Christ. We reflect on these great truths as ones whose eyes have been opened, whose ears have been unstopped, 
and whose hearts understand. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for opening our eyes by your Spirit to the Word made flesh, the firstborn of all creation, the exact imprint of your nature. We pray that you would give us spiritual sight to behold your glory and so walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We pray that you would turn our faith into clear sight. We pray that you would return and make all things new. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.